This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. To this point, no U.S. businesses are allowed to set up operations in Cuba, but there is an Alabama company that would like to become the first to do so. Kleber is that company. Saul Barenthal and Horace Clemens are the partners in that company, and they join us here uh, at the Cuba Opportunity Summit. Gentlemen, great to have you. Thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you. Gracias. This is an amazing partnership that, as we were talking before we went on, has been going on between the two of you for 43, 44 years now. You two have worked together in one framework or another, correct? Correct. How did, how did you, I mean, you started meeting at IBM, correct? I'll, I'll tell you a little story about how I first met uh, Horace. Okay. I was stationed in New York. I lived in New York, but working on a project in North Carolina for IBM okay. on a new product that was under development for my customer at the time, J.C. Penney's. So we were working on a point-of-sale device, not yet released by IBM, so it was super secret. Mm -hmm. I was in a lab in North Carolina, and I was given a number to call if I ran into any technical difficulties. And sure enough, as we were doing the testing, I ran into technical difficulties. I reached for my phone, and I called, talked to a guy that says, I'll be right there to help. A few minutes later, I was waiting, and I see this guy in overalls coming in, <laughs> and I said, oh, my God, am I in trouble? That's how I met Horace. And, it, you, and how, did it, how did it come from your viewpoint? Well, I mean, that's the first time I met Saul. I was, it was a Saturday, and I was at home, and I get a call that says you have to go to work, and so I wasn't about to change clothes, so I went in yeah. my overalls, and it didn't leave him with a first impression that was uh, very good. The interesting part of the story, kind of going back before the relationship, Saul, is your background with Cuba. And there's a great story uh, about how you and your wife are, are very much involved with Cuba and trying to build up or rebuild, I guess, the Jewish community within the island nation. Tell us a little bit about that. that that's correct. I, I was born and raised in Cuba, and so was my wife. As a matter of fact, she used to live about half a block away from me as we were kids. Hmm. Being in a community of Jewish people in Cuba, well, at the time, there were about 15,000 of us. Uh -huh. So it's a small community, and we all hang around, so to speak. So we knew each other since we were kids. Uh, we both left Cuba pretty much at the same time after uh -huh. the revolution and. Uh, late 60, 1960. And we, of course, went to Miami. Uh, we didn't last in Miami very long. I figured out that if I was going to be an American, mm -hmm. I better get out of Miami. Yeah. So we both moved, her family moved, and I moved uh, to finish college uh, in New York. Mm -hmm. After I finished college, we got married. And, of course, met Horace in IBM. After working for IBM 18 years, him and I decided we were going to go and build our own company. We did. We were successful. Uh, sold it, retired, and then started again in about 2008 to travel to Cuba, mainly to see what had become of the island that we left. 
and of course to establish a little bit of some of the old relationships with some of the Jewish people in Cuba. Mm -hmm. We found a lot of need. We found a lot of people who were completely uh, detached from the rest of the Jewish world. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we decided that it would be a good thing to start organizing groups yeah. in the U.S. to take to Cuba and let them interact with them. Cultural exchanges, if you will, in terms of the religion. And what I didn't realize is that uh, Cuba, I guess many, many years ago, became uh, a, a destination for Jews uh, leaving Eastern Europe, correct, and right. the oppression that was was uh, in there back in the I guess in the late 30s and 40s and 50s as well, correct. Correct. My, but both my parents came from Europe, fleeing from the Holocaust. Yeah. So they had established themselves in Cuba, waiting for an opportunity to come to the U.S. But after a while, once they got established and they were starting to work and be in business, they decided to stay in Cuba. So that's where I was born and raised. Now, a lot of the, the, the trips that I guess from reading that you have been taking in, in recent years uh, are, are, for the most part, basically like missions. You're, you're going down there and you're taking supplies to, to people in that community down there, uh, supplies that, in many cases, they wouldn't be able to afford down there, correct? Correct, correct. Medicine as well as clothing as well as almost anything that you can think of. The community is very small nowadays. There's about 800 Jewish people in Cuba, uh -huh. three synagogues. And in essence, what happens is that the Americans and the Canadians and the Panamanian Jews do go there and help them a lot in terms of some of the needs that they have. Right. The one thing that is missing us at this point is a rabbi. There is no such thing as a Cuban <laughs> rabbi, and there is no such thing as kosher food in Cuba. Yeah. So one of the goals that I have yet to accomplish is the ability to bring to Cuba kosher food, which, of course, requires to have a rabbi to also go through the rites and everything else uh, to serve it properly. So it is still a goal, and it is a work in progress. However... Traveling there, I have met and have gotten a lot of good contacts in Cuba mm. and learned a lot about the changes that had been going on in the island for the last few years, yeah. given the economic model. I got the opportunity to meet a lot of the uh, professors in the University of Havana in the economics department, because I also organize uh, groups from academics Sure. in the universities of North Carolina to have exchange, academic exchanges with uh, pro, uh, professors on both sides as well as students. Right. So given the fact that I got some of that relationship, I started to understand some of the economic changes that were occurring in Cuba. And I always told Horace, one of these days we're going to have an opportunity to take advantage of that knowledge. And that's something that, Horace, obviously you're in the process of trying to kind of build out right now. But over the last few years in hearing these stories of what Cuba is like, and I don't know if you've had, obviously, I'm guessing you've had the opportunity to go down there a couple of times as well. What has been your reaction? What have you seen in the island itself? Well, I think we all understand what the embargo has done to Cuba at least from what we read. But going there and seeing what the embargo has done to Cuba is different from reading about it. So, you know, I, I tell everybody, you know, having served in combat in Vietnam affected my views on foreign policy. Mm -hmm. uh, there's not much that I agree about that we do with what we do in foreign policy. Uh, I look at 
you know, how we trade with Vietnam and the business we do with Vietnam, and yet we pull away from doing business with with Cuba. Yeah. And and none of that really makes any sense to me. So, you know, when Saul asked me to, he said, let's go do this, do something in Cuba. There, there never were any doubts or any qualms about should we or should we not do business in Cuba. I believe we have... Uh, a moral obligation to try to help improve life in Cuba because of the way we've treated them. Well, and in some respects, we, you know, the United States is seen as the country that has a moral obligation to to try and help anybody around the world. And I guess in some respects, for us to not do that with Cuba is letting a, a nation down that could certainly use the help. Correct. Exactly my view. I believe that we can do a lot. I believe we, I believe we are obligated to. I believe because of the relationship and what we've done with the embargo, yeah. that that I believe if most Americans could go there and look at what we have caused, the, the pain and suffering we've caused that country, I believe we would have more people that would support lifting the embargo. So now he mentioned. Go ahead, Saul. On the other hand, I, I just want to relate a little story of uh, a friend of mine in Cuba who. I met in Miami. He travels back and forth to Cuba. He's a businessman. He's a cuenta propista, which is a private sector person. Uh-huh. And we talk a lot about exactly what Horace was saying right now in terms of the relationship between the two countries. And from the Cuban perspective, he told me something that was, to me, very significant. He said, Cubans are in love with their enemy. <laughs> okay. Meaning that for 50 years, we have been considered... The, the enemy. enemy, yeah, and yet they're still in love with the U.S. for what we are, for who we are, and for what we can do for them. So now you've had a couple of years now, and and Saul mentioned you'll have an opportunity, and it appears like now you have that idea where that opportunity is in terms of tractors, and obviously Cuba is is well known as an agricultural country, so. First, how did the idea come up to want to try and do this project, being able to basically produce tractors down in Cuba? Well, I think some of it came from our shared experience in the previous business that we had in technology. We looked at, at what the, the IBMs and the big businesses were doing to their customers, trying to sell them what they had and weren't listening to the customers. And so I think a lot of it just came from let's listen to what the Cuban people want and what does the Cuban government want. And in that agreement that Raul and Obama signed, I think it was fairly clear that agriculture is one of the key components. And, and so uh, uh, that, that gave us the starting point. So having been born in rural Alabama and walked behind a mule with my grandfather, yeah. I knew the starting point for agricultural improvement in Cuba was going to be very similar to the starting point for agriculture expansion in Cuba so we've seen what happened when we went from the family farm to agribusiness. I believe they'll start the same place. I would hate to see them end up at the same place. So it's just as simple as being able to provide farmers in Cuba the opportunity to have a motorized tractor instead of walking behind uh, a cow or a bull, correct? Yes, so how does that process go on? Because as we were talking before the on the air, you have the approvals from Cuba to be able to get this started. Right now, what you're waiting on is the approvals here in the United States. Correct, Saul? That, that is correct. The process that we have to follow in the U.S. is to file for a license from OFAC. OFAC is the enforcement a, uh, aspect of Treasury Department in charge of the embargo. Mm-hmm. 
So they are the ones who regulate the activities. It was in December 17 when President Obama decided to open up a f two industries that are very, very significant of commerce with Cuba. One is agriculture, and the other one is uh, construction. Mm -hmm. it, it was not something that they thought of just by coincidence. It is very important to understand that those two industries are very much related as collateral support for tourist industry in Cuba, which is the most important source of hard currency to Cuba. Uh -huh. So the, the ability to improve production of agriculture in Cuba allows for Cuban to be able to feed the, the tourism that comes in. Yeah. And construction allows them to be able to have places for the tourists to stay in. So these two industries are the first entree that the U.S. government has done in the interest of helping Cuba develop its tourism industry. But what you would like to put in Cuba is a little bit different, as we were talking before we taped this, is it's a little bit of a different model in terms of the operation of providing the tractors, but also providing the equipment necessary if a tractor breaks down as well, correct? Well, you know, as Saul and I talked about this, we looked at how do we provide the ability so that the Cubans can ensure that they're safe with whatever they buy. So we're, we're following what we call an open source manufacturing model. Uh -huh. So the tractor is put together with all open source components such that the Cubans know that they don't need us in order to fix the tractor. Right. All the all the parts are standard parts. So our, our business in Cuba is dependent on us continuing to provide quality service, not on a specific component. Right. So that way they, they can understand that we have to be pushed to strive for excellence to provide them the highest quality at the lowest possible price. Right. And what we're trying to get done is to use that model not just for the tractor but for light construction equipment that goes forward so we're trying yeah. to set up an architecture or a model that says as you try to expand what you do try to follow the open source model so that you're not locked into a particular manufacturer right exactly it's not like you would have to go to specifically say john deere for every one of your pieces of your parts that, no, that no. you might need or no. you know take your pick yeah. which is which is obviously it's something very different and self-sufficiency the model that we're trying to build over there is first starts with assembling of the component assembling of the tractors the components coming from the u.s right second phase of the project calls for them to be able to manufacture the components and assemble them, therefore having their ability to be self-sufficient in producing sure. tractors. We then help them out as a value-add aspect of it in the phase two of the project, which is an electrical tractor that is charged by solar panels. Wow. So that is the second aspect of the project that we're intending for them to do. So once you get the approvals from the U.S. government, then what will the process be at that point? Uh, building a facility down on the island to be able to get this production done? Correct. And this is where the technicalities of uh, getting the uh, license approved by OFAC are all about. One of the things that the regulations call for is for us to be able to deal directly with the private sector, not to deal with the Cuban government. Okay. If we're going to build a facility in Mariel, then the, the people who build facilities in Cuba, which are part of the government, would build those facilities. Okay. We went to 
Mariel, the people in Mariel that we interface with, and we ask him, what if we bring an American company to build our facility in Mariel? Would you let us do that so that we can show the people back in the U.S. that we are trying to do everything we can not to benefit the government entity, sure. but to do it directly with an American company? They went back, and they came back to us, and they said, yes, you can do that. They said, we would like you to consider our own, but if you want to use a an American company to build your facility? Yes, you can. I, I say this because it shows that the Cuban government, the people in Mariel, are helping. They want us to do what we're saying we want to do. Right. The, the other aspect of it is uh, Senorita Igarza, which is the director of the Mariel operation, has been on record several times in newspapers saying that the project that we're bringing to Cuba is not only attractive, but necessary for Cuba. Sure. Yeah. So they are very interested and are willing to do this. We are, on the other hand, waiting on the American side to give us a license for it. We're talking with Saul Barenthal and Horace Clemens, who are uh, partners in the company Clever, about building uh, a manufacturing plant down in Cuba to be able to produce uh, tractors for uh, the island. It, it's very interesting because this is something that... It, it does show the want of the Cuban people, uh, of the Cuban government, to really affect change. And that is maybe a little bit of a stigma that I think a lot of people here in America have kind of held a as, a, as a truth o over the last 50, 55 years, that Cuba doesn't want our help. Cuba wants to be totally separate from us. And from what you're saying, it, it's absolutely the opposite. You will. I, I, I don't like to get into the politics, but... Even when the politicians talk to each other, Cuba and the U.S., you will always hear, we want to be treated with respect okay. and dignity. Right. To them, it's very important that they are considered equals when dealing with other countries, but specifically the U.S. But what about also the fact that if, if you went to the people in Mariel and, and they made this decision compared to the Cuban government, that's a little bit of a shift as well, is it not? Well, it's, it's a little bit more complicated than okay. that. The, okay. the approval process in Mariel is a, what, what I would call a very flat process. You go to Mariel with a project, you present it to them, they evaluate it okay. to see whether it meets the requirements and it is something that they want. If they so decide that it is, they bring it immediately to what is called in Cuba the Council of Ministry, Consejo de Ministros. Okay. And in there, all of the ministries of Cuba are represented, mm -hmm. and they have to give approval to the project. Okay. Now, everything in Cuba is done by consensus. It is very important that everybody has the ability to understand and be willing to agree with the project. So what happened in Mariel was that as soon as they approved it and sent it to the uh, uh, minister, uh, Council of Ministries, they evaluated, they looked mm -hmm. into it, and they were willing to say, yes, this is something that we want. Right away, they would send it back to Mariel. Mariel contacted us and say, okay, let's proceed. What are the production numbers, that, I guess, that you hope to, to be able to have once you, you get something like this up and running in terms of the numbers of tractors that potentially you could produce over the course of a year. Do you have a ballpark number at this point? Well, we wanted to start with the ability to produce at least 150 for the market 
that we believe exists in there. Okay. But our ability to produce numbers higher than that is obvious. We can produce up to 500, 600, 700 tractors. They're right. not difficult to put together. But we have to measure what the absorption of that product would be when we start implementing in, in Cuba. But this would obviously be a, an important piece for the Cuban economy just in general. <laughs> well, the long-term goal is to export the tractors. Right, so exactly. Manufacture yep. and export yep. it. And I believe that once we get the electric model, the, the, the export capability, that's a tractor that will sell almost everywhere. Uh, so if you look at all the other countries where there, there's not good supply of electricity, uh, electricity the solar panel charger will yeah. do that. So, and you also look at distribution of petroleum and what's happening to petroleum and the availability. And so, we believe the electric model will be very significant in the long term. How, how strong a, of, a, of a battery or a charge, you know, do you have to have for this type of a, of a vehicle? But people wonder about that. I say, there are electric race cars. That's true, okay. yes. Yeah. Elon Musk has an electric sports car. Yeah, yeah. So the, the technology has moved so far. So even, even with a tractor, we, we will have a, a solar panel ch- recharger, so an assist on the Right roof on the like tractor. a roof or something? So, so yeah. uh, again, if you look at an eight-hour day on a farm, you're not running that tractor for all the eight hours. Right. So, so our goal is to be able to get a design point for an eight-hour operation and an overnight recharge. It's, a, it's an incredible – where did the idea, though, to do it as a solar piece, where did that end up coming from originally? From, from you, Horace, huh? Well – As Saul points towards you. <laughs> well, I, I would like to say it came from me, but there's so much being done with solar today and, and that it, it's just a little natural evolution of, of what you – you know, so it, it will be able – to be done. So you're, you're looking at battery capacity. To me, it's no great leap to say that you can operate a tractor off of batteries. It just uh, showed me a picture of the uh, of the tractor that they have. Driver not included. Drive. That's right. Driver not included. But you know, it's it's a little bit of a of a smaller tractor than I guess what we typically think of here in the United States. Is this the norm for the size of the tractors that you're going to be producing? Yes. Well, if you look back, so that tractor is is modeled after an Alice Chambers Model G tractor that was first built in 1948 and discontinued in 1955. Right. It was built for the fa- the small family farm, so anywhere from 40 to 60 acres. Okay. Uh, it, and so it, since it was discontinued, we picked that model because it is it is proven with brand name engineering behind it, Yeah. and all the patents have expired, so it's a model that we can just copy, which, which makes it easier for us. We can then... We can then upgrade it. We, we can then <clears throat> we can then upgrade it with some other newer technology, like it had manual lift, and we went to hydraulic lift and those kind of things. It, it is amazing that 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 you're able to you know put this concept together going forward. I mean, this is this is an incredible change, even in the in the agriculture industry, to be able to think about solar power to run your equipment. And you think about it; it's a natural, it's a natural fit because these these pieces are out there every day. And as you said, they're not running, you know, twenty four seven, but they're running a good bit of the day. And when they're not, they're sitting out in the sun. Especially in an environment like Cuba, where the electrification of the island has not been completed. Yet. Right. How important, though, is going forward 
what you've done to this point and what you will do going forward with this project, the trust that you've been able to build up with the people in Marielle and with the government. I mean, it, having that trust is one of the things that we've kind of talked about a lot as an important component to really get any business relationship going between the United States and Cuba. It's very simple to establish trust with Cubans. You just have to understand their culture. In the Cuban business culture, you, you have to always present the project, not only in economic terms, but what are the social benefits and what are the cultural benefits of mm -hmm. the projects that you're presenting to them. Once you understand what is it that motivates them to do things mm -hmm. and you present it in such a way, it is very simple for them to understand you and trust you. And is doing that and getting those three components that you just talked about, is that the toughest thing right now for U.S. businesses to be able to really push forward so that they can build relationships. Correct. When you, when, when you look at who's going to Cuba from the U.S. and what are they proposing, they're all going there to say, what can we sell you? Sure, yeah. We have chickens, we have corn, we have soybeans. No. Cuba wants Partners. people to invest in Cuba. Yeah. And investing in Cuba means giving them a project in which they're going to derive jobs, production capabilities, minimizing their import needs, and producing more food for themselves. And you believe that that will happen sometime in the next few years on a, on a mass basis? If we set up the conditions and we set up the framework in which to do it, many will follow. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.